The Christian Atheist is also available on YouTube, and you will find other great content, including the literature I frequently refer to, on our Simple Gifts podcast. If you find our content helpful, consider supporting us through PayPal at RomansChapter5 at Comcast.net. Welcome to the Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode 40, The Ugly Hegel. Like episodes 38 and 39, episodes 40 and 41 form a unit, written together but separated because of length and complexity. Please listen to both as a unit. Having presented the good and the bad of Hegel, it is now time for The Ugly, a presentation of those philosophers I have called the prescriptive Hegelians. I call them prescriptive by way of contrast with Hegel's own practice of description as a philosophical program. As we've noted several times, Hegel explicitly viewed his own philosophical task as being the historian of spirit, telling its story. As such, he took great pains to carve nature at her joints, to allow the world to dictate to him the content he described. In this way, although laying the groundwork by denying transcendence, for an extreme relativism and a collectivist subjective constructivism, about which we will have a great deal more to say in upcoming episodes, Hegel's practice was essentially objective, limited by the real, even though the real for him was metaphysically phenomenal. Despite his emphasis on the general over the particular, details mattered profoundly to him, as spirit was to be found at every level, and all levels of concern, of existence, were philosophically relevant. Once again, a quotation from Benchevenga is useful. Hegel's logic, he says, quote, Because of what tool it is, will pervade and appropriate every subject matter, reveal it as conceptually structured through and through. Indeed, as nothing other than conceptually structured, it will supersede the distinction between a concept and its instances, and make every particular existence, however modest, however local, a matter of logical concern. End quote. Thus, what we have termed Hegelian humility, his submission to the task of describing the product of spirit, phenomenal reality, is his subservience to what appears, down to the smallest of details. In this way, he continues to act as if empirical reality is real, while undermining it metaphysically graphically displaying the self-deceptive structures, what is sometimes called cognitive dissonance, we continue to observe again and again. Hegel did not foresee that when he, as Nietzsche poetically put it, untethered us from our son, his descriptivist program must give way, as the center progressively loses its hold its central value, 
objective meaning becomes the decomposing corpse of God of which Nietzsche spoke. Through a self-deceptive act of willful blindness, Hegel might pretend that the phenomenology of spirit can stand in for objective reality as an objective constraint to reason's pretensions. But for his followers, reality will increasingly become a matter of choice, not of necessity, becoming what Kant called empirical idealism. Being will be no longer the limit to rational speculation, the what to which reason applies itself. Instead, reason will be the author of being. Therefore, in a very profound way, it was our bad Hegel that committed the most prescriptivist move of all, the most radical departure from descriptivism, by declaring that all is imminence, all is process, that all else must be reduced to imminence. This is the mother of all prescriptivist moves, the creation of the world in his own image, and it sets the pattern for what will follow. Let's spend just a moment to familiarize ourselves with that move. In any honest confrontation with human conscious experience, what Sartre would call the incorrigible evidence of ontology, we have both imminent reality and transcendent indexicality. These are the twin realms which are reflected by Kant's commitment to both empirical realism and transcendental idealism. When Hegel denies transcendence, he privileges one aspect, imminence, of ontological experience as the whole of reality. He chooses to treat the part, that is, as the whole. And instead of recognizing or acknowledging this choice as choice, he treats it as necessary, as imposed by reality itself. Hegel knows better. He sits in God's seat. Absolute idealism is not for Hegel a metaphysics in the Kantian and Sartrean sense. That is, a chosen explanation accepted on faith and thus outside the realm of certainty, but rather the very nature of reality itself. It is faith masquerading as certainty, as knowledge, much as we uncovered it in our series on atheism. This movement and this self-deception is endemic to the prescriptivist position. We have termed Hegel's philosophy an inversion of value, and we now understand better the nature of that inversion. We are now in a position to present the fork in the road in our culture wars over the last two centuries. It was Hegel who substituted, as we've said, the imminent absolute, his step into pantheism, for the transcendent absolute, God. Nietzsche saw this step for what it was, a wholesale reordering of everything that held Western civilization together. 
a sea change of unparalleled magnitude. Nietzsche's death of God was his recognition that in the loss of a transcendent absolute, we are faced by a chaos unprecedented in human history. He rightly saw the moment as both decisive and radical for the West. That Hegel's imminent absolute, reason, must inevitably yield pride of place to other values, as value itself had been undermined. Seeking to salvage the absolute authority and unique value of reason from Kant's critique, Hegel ended by relativizing reason, fragmenting it into competing factions with no transcendent standard by which to order them. Transcendence, however, does not go away because we ignore it or declare it void. Human beings, by nature, serve a highest value, whether they conceive that value as transcendent or imminent. As psychologist Jonathan Haidt observes, we are built on a platform of worship. We order our existence as if a supreme value exists. It lights the world for us enabling us to have a world rather than a series of disconnected experiences. Remove God, and humanity will substitute something else, something lesser. The injunction to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's is a universal principle which we ignore at our peril. Our psychological makeup indexes a highest value in transcendence. To confuse that value with lesser values is to overvalue the lesser, to sacralize the imminent, to turn the political and temporal into the ultimate and eternal. We see this substitution everywhere in today's world, and it is a direct consequence of Hegel's influence. The history of post-Hegelian philosophy is, in many ways, the history of this process of substitution. The Nazis, following Hegel's praise of the German state and culture, and their own notions of racial superiority, substituted the Third Reich. While the Hegelian right, as we've said, elevates some aspect of what is to the status of ultimate value, siding with the dialectic thesis, the left sides with the opposition, the antithesis. Marx, more subtle, intellectually comprehensive and ethically focused than the fascists, substituted economic justice, the socialist utopia, as the absolute. Many on the right failed to acknowledge that Marx's critique of capitalism was religious, even Christian in its import, even as he denies God and transcendence. The church was not historically friendly to merchants or the profit motive, and the scriptural injunction to care for the poor and downtrodden holds perennial ethical appeal. Much of the force 
and fascination of Marx's analysis, both historically and presently, stands upon this moral claim to superiority by socialism. My point here is neither to defend nor to denigrate Marxism, but merely to point out that its focus was moral and thus practical. To prescribe a course of action in this new reality, a highest value in this Hegelian framework. It also follows the pattern, making a part into the whole. For economic justice, all must be sacrificed. For Marxism, this historical part of the ethical code is the whole of ethics. There is no other meaning to virtue or ethics. This imminent end will justify any means. Marx thus follows Hegel in claiming special knowledge of the world. But in addition to God's perspective, Marx also arrogates his judicial and legislative authority, justifying universal judgment of the world. All values conceived as absolute call forth action, as action is intentional, goal-directed. Denying transcendence, he claims the absolute right to legislate moral certitude. This same position will be adopted again and again by the prescriptive Hegelians. We all should work for socialist revolution, as the existing state of affairs is morally bankrupt. Admittedly, Marx also made the claim, following Hegel, that the progress of history required the overthrow of capitalism, that the force of the collective denies the freedom and even the value of the individual. The revolution was, for Marx, a foregone, a prescribed conclusion. The socialist utopia will come. This is Marx's version of the Hegelian doctrine of historicism, the idea that it is history itself, spirit incarnate, rationality or dialectical logic writ large, that determines all that occurs. Like so much in Hegel, a kernel of this doctrine is true. But we should not mistake the part for the whole. Historicism would claim, that is, that human action, in the sense of ethical choice, real freedom on the part of individual human beings, does not drive world events. The world for Marx, and in imminence humans are simply components of that system, is determined by the economic conditions, the collective structures. Human beings are cogs in the machine that will bring about this historical inevitability. This is a consequence of the collectivism engendered by Hegel's process metaphysics, as we've seen in previous episodes. The contradiction between the active advocacy, the ethical prescriptivism of socialism on Marx's part, and this metaphysical determinism never seem to bother him just as contradiction does not seem to bother the entire tradition of prescriptive Hegelianism. It is Hegel's logic, after all, that forms the superstructure of Marx's system. 
Contradiction is not a problem, but rather the engine of progress. This embrace of contradiction is one of the hallmarks of all Hegelian thinking. Contradiction, though, implies resolution in the dialectic. And there is a position that knows better, possesses special knowledge, of which everyone else is ignorant, that has moved beyond the contradiction to its resolution. This is the synthesis, the Aufhebung of Hegel's dialectic. As James Lindsay makes clear, Hegelianism is tied, thus, to Gnosticism, a religious claim to arcane and specialized knowledge that makes its bearer superior to everyone else in understanding, thus justifying whatever they may claim. I am a Christian, with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening, and remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.